0: You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon.
1: Scripture reading this morning from the New King James Version is Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And he journeyed and came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do and the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul rose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Please be seated.
0: It's so pretty outside today, and it was yesterday. God is good, and all the time. So years ago when I was entertaining the notion of ministry, my dad urged me to speak with uh, my granddaddy's best friend who'd been a preacher for decades, so I made an appointment with him. He was the president of a Christian school in uh, Madison, Tennessee at the time. And went and met him at his office one day and we sat and talked and and we just talked about what all it meant to be a preacher and because he had done that for so long he he had a lot of insight to give but there are probably a handful of things that I remember from that specific meeting one of which was I asked him I said what's the number one trait that makes a preacher or minister a good preacher or minister now I would have thought of a lot of different things he could have answered. But the answer that he gave was very surprising, at least to me. He said, compassion. I thought that sounds pretty good. And he went on to to explain and build on that. He said, when a preacher or a person has the ability to look at another human being, regardless of their state in life, And have your heart just go out to them. He said, that'll make a good preacher. I figured he would have said public speaking abilities uh, or the like, or or being a, a, a good Bible student. But he said compassion. I think you would agree that as Christians, having compassion is a good trait to have. But what I want to challenge is when it's hard to have compassion, can we still have it? Now you would think, why would it ever be hard to have compassion? It really demands that we step outside of ourselves and we look at another human being in regard of their lot and where they stand with God. I'll I'll give you an example. It's easy to have compassion on someone who may have limitations either physically, mentally, or otherwise, right? They can't do for themselves, so we are moved by compassion to want to help them. But what about having compassion for someone who is vile, who is, we might think, downright evil, or or add anything else upon that that would make us want to necessarily not have compassion? Now You might say, why would you ever have compassion for someone that bad? Well, as Christians, hopefully, seeing how bad a person is, we would be moved and think, they really need the Lord. If they had Jesus, maybe they wouldn't resort to this kind of behavior. When we read the story of Saul before he became a Christian, we read about a man that it would have been hard to feel sorry for, it would have been hard for your heart to go out to because of the things that he did. And even he himself in a writing would describe his standing and where he was headed, at least as it pertains to the flesh. In Philippians 3 verses 4 through 7 He described Himself saying, If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. That's a pretty impressive resume or CV, if you will. Uh, it was commanded in the law that every male Israelite was to be circumcised on the eighth day. Paul said, Saul says, I, 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 I did that. Of the stock of Israel, specifically the tribe of Benjamin, there are only two tribes that throughout the history of Israel, were more faithful than any, and that was Judah and Benjamin. Paul says, I'm from that tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews, he's saying, I'm a Jew's Jew. It's almost, you probably heard the expression, that's a man's man right there. Saul is saying, I'm a Jew's Jew. You couldn't be more Hebrew than I. Concerning the law, he was a Pharisee. That was his position. Concerning zeal, he persecuted the church of God. Now, here's something you you may not pick up on, uh, but I think Paul writing to a familiar audience would have them pick up on. The word zeal is often used in reference to one specific priest of the Old Testament, and that is Phinehas. In the book of Numbers, there was an occasion where uh, the Israelite men were consorting with Moabite women And this has led to idolatry. And because of this, the wrath of God had poured out on the nation of Israel in the wilderness. And a Moabite woman and an Israelite man are walking toward the tabernacle. And everyone who is faithful to the Lord are prostrate before the tabernacle, praying to God, asking for His forgiveness, for relief from His affliction. And this Moabite woman and, and, and this Israelite man are about to step into the courtyard of the tabernacle, which is a place only for the Levites and the priests. And Phinehas, because he's moved with zeal, he hops up and grabs a spear and he rushes both of them through, killing them each. Now, I, you may say, how is murder or, or, or killing ever a part of God's plan? But when you read the rest of that, God removes his wrath from Israel and he says, zeal for thy house will consume thee of Phineas, And this is also a passage that is invoked in the Gospel of John when Jesus turned over the tables and ran the money changers out. Zeal for thy house will consume thee. And so Paul probably thought the zeal he was exhibiting as it was tied to persecuting the church, he probably thought, I am carrying on the work of Phineas." He is, in a way, identifying with him. And concerning the righteousness, which is the law, he says, I'm blameless. You couldn't look at me and say, well, these are the commandments he breaks. These are the ones he struggles with. This is where he falls short. So at least before he was a Christian, he had everything going for him. And when you study his life... Uh, you see him not only identifying with Phinehas the priest, but you also see him somewhat identifying with Elijah the prophet, who was a voice to Israel to turn them away from idolatry. And so for God to bring about His promises, Israel had to be the people that God had assigned them to be, that is, a light to the nations. Isaiah said that as much. That was God's plan for the restored Judahites or Israelites, that they be a light to the nations. But now in Paul's mind, some of his fellow Jews are worshiping Jesus of Nazareth, and he sees the need for some sacred violence to rein in these seemingly idolatrous and apostate Jews. He believes he's doing God's work, but he's about to have the most shattering and fulfilling moment in his life. Shattering because he'll learn that he had been wrong this whole time, but fulfilling and that he'll know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So, give you a little bit of historical background if your Bible's open to Acts chapter 9. We are somewhere between August and October in the year 34. It's not been very long since Jesus himself had been crucified, that he died, and that he rose from the grave. Now, I know we think that that occurred in the year 33. Uh, The monk, uh, exegist, who came up with the B.C. and A.D. yearly designations, we have learned, was off about four to six years. So I, I like to say anywhere from the years 27 to 33 thereabout, we have a pretty good reference as to when Jesus actually ministered and died. And only to say that when Saul is persecuting the church, it's not very long after Uh, Jesus' crucifixion, that this is occurring. And as as a matter of fact, uh, something really to think about is the fact that maybe even Saul himself saw Jesus crucified. Maybe he was there, because when he later gives an account of himself, he says, I'm indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel according, uh, excuse me, taught according to the strictness of our Father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. So he was brought up in Jerusalem, and so it's likely that he was present when Jesus was ministering. Maybe he was in training, or maybe he was a full-fledged Pharisee at the time. But maybe, and we don't know, Scripture doesn't say, but it may have been that he was familiar with the Lord, and that maybe even he saw Jesus crucified. So, you know, that's something to think about. It may not be that case. But he sees the Lord's disciples. Because remember, for the first decade of Christianity, the only Christians are those who are Jewish. So there are no Gentile Christians. So it's nothing but Israelites. And so he's seeing the disciples of Jesus as needing correction, and he believes his cause is God's cause, and there's nothing more dangerous than a person that believes that they're doing God's work using violence. But this is what he's doing. When he speaks about his zeal, uh, we can think of Phineas in that regard. So to the Jew, Phineas and Elijah were both heroes, and Saul is seeing his ministry as vital to the nation of Israel. Now, he is already depicted in Scripture as a leader in the persecution. Acts chapter 8, verse 3 points this out, but also Galatians 1, 13 and 14. He says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father's. So here's a guy that had a passion for God, but it wasn't according to knowledge. Here's a guy that wanted to serve the Lord and glorify Him in everything. And of course, at the time, it was the belief that anytime you had erring brethren, they either had to be corrected or they had to be cut off. And sometimes that cut off was a result of righteous or sacred violence. So in your Bibles, if you look with me again at these passages of Saul's conversion, verses 1 and 2. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I want you to notice that it's Saul who initiates this mission, but he does it with the support of the high priest. Now, what's interesting to keep in mind is the same high priest, when Saul asked for letters, is the same one who had Jesus put to death. Caiaphas so we could probably say that Caiaphas has a little skin in the game he remembered having given consent to Jesus being crucified and now there's an uprising people have claimed that they've seen Jesus rise from the dead and now they're preaching this gospel and so many of the stock of Israel are are following him and professing him as Lord And so Caiaphas lends his support to Saul's mission. But here at least, Saul isn't seeking to murder, but he's only seeking to bound and to bring back to Jerusalem those who are following or who are members of the way. Now you pick up where Saul has his vision. As he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The the vision that Saul has is very similar to that of Ezekiel. And I'm not the first to suggest this. You pick up a commentary on Acts and there's going to be a comparison drawn between Saul and Ezekiel. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel was in Babylon. He was exiled from his homeland, seated in a refugee camp by a river. And he has this vision, and there the glory of the Lord appears, and the throne of the Lord, and the cherubim of the Lord. And some of the common things that Ezekiel's vision has, as well as Paul's, or Saul's, is there's a bright light, there's a vision of God, there's the falling to the ground, there's the command to arise, and then there is the commission. Go out and say, go out and do. But I want to point out to you that when Jesus... First speaks to Paul or to Saul here, same person, Saul and Paul, one's the Hebrew name, the other's a Greek name. Uh, he says, or rather he asks, "Why are you persecuting me?" An attack against the body of Christ, against the church is as good as an attack against Jesus himself. Why are you persecuting me?" And he said, "Who are you, Lord?" Now Lord is capitalized in your Bible, as it probably is in mine too, uh, Curios, it could be the formal title, that as, as we would say of Jesus, but it was also just common manners. Uh, it's another way of saying, who are you, sir? So he may not have been meaning it necessarily as Lord, Master, as we do, but who are you, sir? Then the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. One of the things that Daddy has done that I've—I'm not crazy enough to try this—but I like watching him try it when he used to do it, and that is when he'd try and break a horse. Anybody ever had to do that, break a horse to ride it, or have you ever seen it done? You know, I remember when I was a kid, and I would do things, and Daddy would say, "If you're going to be stupid, you got to be tough." And I always loved it when he was breaking a horse and he'd get injured, I'd go, if you're gonna be stupid, you gotta be tough. All right? that's a Uno reverse card right there is what that is. But when you think about it, whenever you finally get the horse broke or somewhere in there, I'm not an expert on it. I, I'm not that crazy. Um, some people, well, they're a few fries short of a Happy Meal and they'll take that, that uh, task on. But once you get in, of course, you know, we never were the ones to wear spurs or anything, but, uh, you know, you have the bit and the bridle, you have your your saddle and all that stuff. But you, th- this notion of it's hard for you to kick against the goads, it, it, it has that in mind where you're trying to prod along an animal, but maybe in their case, a cow or an ox, and you know, it, it doesn't want to go. So you prod it a little harder and you prod a little harder. Now, these days, they have that little, uh, almost like the elongated taser that gives a jolt good enough to really get livestock moving. Well, the Lord is saying to Saul, you've got all these things happening, but you're kicking against the goads and it's impossible for you to do so. So what is it precisely? What are the goads that Saul has resisted? Remember, it was he who was holding the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen to death. And while he's holding those cloaks, he no doubt had heard everything that Stephen said. The good sermon beginning in Genesis all the way up to the book of Acts. That he covered the history of Israel and he covered the truth of Jesus being the Messiah. And Saul is listening to all this. And then, as they pick up the stones to put him to death, he hears him praying to God, I see the Lord, as the heavens open up, lay not this charge to them. And he gave up his spirit, and Saul is seeing this. Maybe that's one of the goads. Maybe that sermon has been working on his mind and his heart, but he's just resisted it. Maybe the courage and and the faith of Stephen has... Circulated in his mind, but he's resisted it. Those are the goads that he's kicked against, and so now God says, "I'm just going to have to tame you." And so He blinds him, and he falls down, and he says, "It's hard for you to kick against the goads." So he, trembling and astonished, said, "Lord, what do you want me to do?" And the Lord said to him, "Arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do." Now everybody, the men who journeyed with him, they stood speechless. They they heard a voice, but they saw nothing. And they're probably, who is he talking to? I, I hear, but I don't see anybody. So they take Saul, and, and when he opens his eyes, he can't see a thing. So they, they take him by the hand, and they journey on the rest of the way to Damascus. And three days, he was without sight, and he didn't eat, and he didn't drink. Now let's pick up at verse 10 and see how the rest of this story goes. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias... And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. Most of us, if we received that sort of revelation for the Lord, we'd go, Oh, great, we get to tell someone the gospel. We get to it, but look at Ananias' response. Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. You could understand, as I do, why Ananias is a little reluctant. Saul of Tarsus, are we talking about the same guy? because the one I've heard of has persecuted your saints in Jerusalem, and I understand that he has letters from the chief priests to come and to arrest any of us who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I'll show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, you catch that? Brother Saul. doesn't mean he's a Christian, necessarily, uh, because Saul wasn't at this point, but he was a fellow Israelite. Almost like when people, my fellow American, my brother, you know, that's how he's using that. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me to you that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit, and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. We understand Ananias's reluctance. We understand also his willingness. Sometimes we're a little reluctant to do the things that we probably know that God would want us to do. But because God wants us to do it, we can also be willing. But when we lack the willingness, that's where there's the problem. You encounter somebody on a regular basis that you really need to talk to Jesus about, and you really want to, but you're reluctant because you're afraid. You don't need to be afraid. You can talk about your, your favorite sport, the stats of your favorite athlete. You talk about farming and hunting and fishing and anything else under the sun. You know enough about Jesus to talk about Jesus. You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to be able to answer all the questions. All you gotta be do, all you gotta be do. Is that grammatically correct? No. All you have to be willing to do is talk. It's not hard. It's not hard. Don't let Satan keep your mouth shut. Pray to the Lord for wisdom and trust that He'll give you the wisdom. And pray for the opportunity. You know, Friday and anytime I get a chance to sit with some folks or visit with some folks that I love... You know, because people know I'm a minister, it always comes around, I got a question for you, and and I love those conversations because it's an open door. God opens the doors, and I just keep praying, Lord, give the increase. And a good friend of mine, we we spoke last Sunday night. If you've read the Bulletin article uh, uh, last week, uh, I I talk about a conversation that I had. Uh, Read that, but read also this coming weeks because I carry on with telling you about that conversation I love having those kinds of conversations you know if we sit down and someone goes oh let's talk about NASCAR I'm going to fall asleep I know some people like it and that's great but watching on a bunch of cars going in a circle I'd much rather watch one of your five-year-olds ride a bike in a circle around a cul-de-sac but to each their own one of the things that Paul later writes as he reflects on his life and as he's nearing the end of his life is the testimony to Timothy about the truth of the gospel. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief and the grace of the Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is my favorite part of this verse. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I love that. I love that. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come necessarily to judge. That's for a later time. He didn't come to shame. He didn't come to gossip or whisper about. To give the side eye to. He came to save. I think I've told you this before, but I'll remind you of it again because this, as... Paul, the apostle, is a great illustration of the willingness of God to save. I'll give you a a story that most of us probably understand. Now, now, when we read about Saul and, and about his conversion, we go, man, that's great. God is so good. Let's make it a little bit more personal. Jeffrey Dahmer strangled and dismembered 17 boys and men, cannibalizing some of them most of us are old enough to remember when this all occurred in the 80s was it the 80s 70s 80s let's go with the 80s you can always say Stephen you were wrong and I'll say at least you were listening when he was arrested and being tried I think everyone watching the trials and the interviews that followed they wanted that guy to fry what he did was horrendous what he did was evil But on November 28, 1994, many people were glad to learn that he'd been murdered while in prison. And many of them went so far as to proclaim, as if they were God, well, he's going to fry in hell now. But what a lot of people don't know is the story of Kurt Booth, a member of the Crescent Church of Christ in Oklahoma. He remembers watching an interview with Dahmer, and in the interview, Jeffrey Dahmer said, I wish I could find peace. And Kurt Booth thought to himself, Jesus can do that. So he sent Dahmer Bible correspondence courses teaching him about salvation and forgiveness. But the prison lacked a baptistry, and even the prison chaplain wasn't sure they could find somebody who'd be willing to bring in a baptistry, and even to baptize him. So Kurt Booth from Oklahoma reached out to the minister of the Madison Church of Christ in Wisconsin, Roy Ratcliffe. Ratcliffe set up weekly Bible studies with Dahmer, and on May 10, 1994, he baptized Jeffrey Dahmer. Someone who, when we hear the name, we associate with one of the most evil of all people who ever walked the face of the earth. Roy said that uh, later on, Dahmer had said to him that he was afraid of the minister's visits. And the reason he was afraid, Dahmer said to Roy, was that he was afraid that he would be told that he was too evil, that he was too sinful, and that he couldn't baptize someone like him. But this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We are more willing to give up on people. But thank God that He's not willing to give up knowing about Saul of Tarsus, we probably could have said he's too far gone. He's too evil, he's too bad. We could have said the same thing of Jeffrey Dahmer, but Saul was not too far gone, Dahmer was not too far gone, and if you ever think that you're too far gone, rest your worries, because you are not that powerful. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you ever feel so lost, turn to God just as Saul did. It took a pretty large gesture on the Lord's part to get His attention. And that's what it takes for some people. For years, my wife and I talked to my father-in-law about, uh, about obeying the gospel, and he's probably watching live stream from Madison, Tennessee. Paul will tell a story about you. Um, we never want to give up on anybody, but we, we would talk to him here or there, and he had a little bit of religious background, but you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't enough that, that he could rest on. Uh, But I'll tell you the the big thing that moved him to obey the Gospel. And many of you will, once you hear the story, not be surprised. There's a fellow who lived in this community years ago who since went to be with the Lord. Danny Pittman. Anybody know Danny Pittman? Yeah. When my brother-in-law was released from juvenile detention in Nashville, Tennessee for crimes he had committed. Stephanie and I made the decision in consultation with her parents, why don't we bring him up here? We were at New Concord at the time, and I talked to the elders, and and everybody was supportive at that church, and so Jason came up here, he went to Callaway High School, had a few bumps in the road, but the one person that always showed him Steadfast love and support was Mr. Danny Pittman. That doesn't mean anybody else didn't. But Danny would go out of his way. He would walk up to, J- and if you know Danny, you know Danny. He'd walk up to Jason and he'd say, Jason, you been a good boy? He's saying this to a 17, 18 year old. And Jason would never say yes. He'd go, well, I, I'm working on it. And Danny'd hand him a $20 bill and he'd say, well, keep on trying. And, you know, then he'd, he'd go on his way. Of course, when Danny tragically passed away, for whatever reason, that event moved my father-in-law to want to obey the gospel. I think about Patsy and uh, Van and Grant and all the grandchildren, all the loved ones And I'm sure we could all say, I sure miss that man. He was one of the finest men God put on this earth. But it took a huge gesture to get my father-in-law's attention. It took a huge gesture to get Saul's attention. I hope it doesn't come to that for any here. But if it does, I hope God gets your attention. If you believe like Saul did, if you were baptized like Saul was... Forgiveness is yours. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And if you want that salvation, it's offered to you this morning. If you want it, just come to the front while we stand and while we sing.